this is how growth looks. Growth is messy. Growth is sometimes embarrassing. Being willing to bring people in and fall on your face and be messy about it and admit you don't know stuff, that's actually how you grow. As opposed to like, here's the embarrassing ways that I suck. That's a terrible context to have. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Siesta, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today, we're coming in with hot fire. We have got one of my good longtime friends, blogger and author, Leo Babuda. Now, Leo's story, if you don't know it, he has been blogging since 2007 on zenhabits.com. It actually might be .net, but you'll hear about the story in this episode. Now, Leo lived in Guam. Look that up in a map. I still don't know where it is. He was a journalist making nothing, in debt, fat, smoking. Those are his words. And from blogging, building an audience, talking about habits, and being zen, he has been able to be named as one of Time's top 25 bloggers of all time. He has books. He has courses. He has a coaching program that you should check out as well. You can go to zenhabits.net and learn more about that and other things that Leo offers. This is an awesome show. I really enjoyed talking with him. How did he get going from the beginning? How did he get it to the size he is now? All of the struggles he faced today, which he's still going through, and how he overcomes them. There's going to be three gigantic things you're going to learn in this episode. Number one, the evolution of a writer. Super interesting. Two, how do we all deal with helplessness? That's something that we all struggle with, which is when there's a challenge, how do we overcome it? Let's hear what Leo does. And how growth can be messy. Sometimes the dishes taste good, but we don't know what happens in the kitchen. So how do we get better at that? If you are interested to learn more about Leo, check out zenhabits.net. He's also hosting classes where he is coaching people. So if someone like you is wanting to work on your habits, work on your business and work on different things, I love Leo. I highly recommend him. You can check him out at zenhabits.net. As we're preparing for my upcoming book launch, which is going to start next year, and you'll hear a lot more about that in upcoming episodes, I'm enjoying talking to all these different authors. If you have not heard last week's episode, people loved it. It was with Mark Manson. He's the guy who wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... Go check out that episode. People loved it just as much. Before we dive into the show, my course is going to be $50 by the time you heard this. So if you're hearing it before that, go grab it. I think it's still 20 it is how to make a $1,000 a month business. Literally over 10,000 people have done it. It's the exact formula I've used to create over seven different million-dollar businesses. It's helped me create AppSumo today. It'll help you with support, the strategies, and accountability in getting shit done. Go to okdork.com slash monthly1k. Hopefully it's 20 bucks, but if not, $50 is to still create your own business. Such a good deal. Good price. okdork.com slash monthly1k. And lastly, go get my newsletter. Go to noahkagan.com slash lost. It is one of the chapters I was not able to include in my upcoming book. It's free for you. Go to noahkagan.com slash lost. It's got some really juicy, meaty things about how to grow your business. So if that's something you want to do, noahkagan.com slash lost. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener M. Hill Fan. My favorite business podcast. Let's face it. Most business podcasts are dull. I'd agree. The good ones are packed with techniques. Noah's in his own class. He's comfortable with the mic, incredibly knowledgeable, and knows how to bring out the best from his guests. Taco tips equals total excellence. Damn, I love you, M. Hill, and I love every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. Did you get your book thing done? No, I still have to finish. <laughs> what book are you working on? It's called Million Dollar Weekend. It's a book I have coming out January 30th. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That sounds amazing. I'm really proud of it. Yeah, it's definitely intriguing. Million Dollar Weekend. Yeah, man. It's been a lot of work. You do something and then you're like, oh, it's done. It's like, nope, still more. 
Yeah, but it yeah. makes you more proud of it. I put so much into it and tested it and worked on it. I guess I also didn't realize like, how much it took to make a book. <laughs> I thought you'd just like, <laughs> write up it in a Google Doc. They print it out. But uh, there's <laughs> definitely a difference between writing a book and then making a book ideally so helpful and good that people are excited to tell others about it. Is this your first book? Yeah, it's my first book. Oh, man. Oh, exciting. It's my first and last. Oh, really? What I've heard from other authors is that in your first book, you're nervous and you want to do so well that you give it literally everything I know. Yeah. And so my sequel is like one page. (laughs) (laughs) So most authors' second books aren't as good because of that. Yeah. yeah. Next one's going to be a billion dollar weekend. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say how to lose half through divorce. I was like, dude, don't (laughs) joke about stuff like that. You have a book, don't you? I have a few, yeah. One I did with a regular publisher. I did some self-published eBooks. I did one on Kickstarter that I actually printed out. I've done a, a bunch of different things, but I haven't done one in a while. So I've been gearing up for my next one. Weren't you early, as far as I recall, in the internet world days of actually selling an eBook? There was definitely people doing it before me, but my first eBook was before my first print book, and so that was end of two thousand seven. So yeah, pretty early. My first year of blogging, and it had been going really well. And I put together a bunch of blog posts and I turned them into an ebook. And it was my most popular ones. It was called Zen to Done. It was a simple productivity system and it's still selling to this day. And I remember watching the first sales coming in and I was, holy crap, people are buying this. And I was in debt at the time trying to get out of it. And by the time the first few days went by, I was, I was out of debt. And so it was really cool to watch those sales coming in. So tell me more about this first year. I knew about you when you started, I think, with Steve Pavlina. You two were gigantic, especially for me as a blogger early on. I was like, man, this guy's so famous and this guy's so successful. Now, as I've gotten to know you and I actually get to see what happens in the kitchen, there's so many more ups and downs of entrepreneurship and journeys than people realize. And I think that's also inspiring and helpful for others. Maybe walk me through some of your first year, the sales of this, and maybe some of the different highs and lows that it's been since then. Yeah. First year was stumbling around in the dark, a newbie, not knowing what I'm doing. So I remember I started on Blogspot and eventually I'm like, I need to buy a domain and get on WordPress. I was Zen Habits, right? That was the name I picked. And it was already like gaining traction. So by then I probably had 5,000, 10,000 subscribers. Okay. I need to buy a domain, get serious about this. And the domain was already bought, zenhabits.com. And so I bought zenhabits.net, which is what I still use to this day. And I tried to reach out to that guy to buy the domain. And he's already making money off of me because people are going to zenhabits.com. And he put a bunch of like spammy stuff on there and was making money. And so he was, okay, $5,000. And I was broke. I was deeply in debt. I'm like, I don't have 5000 I can pay you 500 He's like, nope, it's worth more than that to me because I'm making a bunch of money off of it. And so I went to him like a year later and that was $20,000. <laughs> I had the 5,000. I'm like, I'm ready to pay 5,000. He's like 20,000. Eventually the years went by and I kept coming back to him ready to buy. And he kept raising the price because it was more and more valuable to him. And it was always more valuable to him than it was to me. Like I was already making money off of my regular site. Titan convinced me of this. He's like, you got to just buy that domain. It's terrible that people are going to zenhabits.com and seeing a bunch of spam and it's ruining your reputation. You got to buy it. So I bought it for $70,000 and I wish I had borrowed $5,000 in the beginning. Before that, I'm curious, what were you doing before? How did you get into debt? How did you even think to start blogging? What was your dream with this blogging stuff? Yeah. So my story probably begins in 2005 when I was 
living in Guam, where I'm from, and I was deeply in debt. I wasn't making money. I was freelancing as a journalist and not making any money. Eventually, I had to like get a day job and I had all these medical bills. I had five kids and one on the way. So we were up to six kids. So I was a journalist, third generation journalist. My mom was a editor of the newspaper. My grandfather was famously the editor of the newspaper for a long time. Oh, damn. So I come from a line of journalists and writers. But I was deeply in debt. All my habits were really bad. I was overweight, a smoker, sedentary. I couldn't stick to an exercise plan. So I started changing it one habit at a time in 2005. I decided I couldn't change everything, so I'm going to change one thing. So I quit smoking. And from that, I poured myself into it. I really got committed to it. I did a lot of research, and then I finally figured out actually how to do it. Because I would tried to quit smoking before like seven times. So I found a few things that really worked. I started doing those. It worked. And then I started running to play smoking as a stress reliever and meditating. And I ran my first 5K by the end of 2005. I'm running a damn marathon now. So a year later, end of 2006, I'm running my first marathon. I trained the whole year. I wrote for the newspaper a column every two weeks about how to actually do that, which was my accountability, the commitment. And I ran my first marathon and the column was done. And I'm, okay, now what? I need more accountability and motivation because that got me to the end of the marathon. So I'm starting a blog because I've been reading a few blogs. Lifehacker, Get Rich Slowly was another one. And so I started a blog and my mom and my wife were the only readers. <laughs> Did you have a dream for it? Was you're like, hey, I'm going to try to make my income here? Not at first. The first month, January 2007, I just want to put my accountability stuff. I want people to be able to read it. And that helped me to continue with my goals because I had been on a real journey of changing everything. By that time, I had lost 30 pounds. I was vegetarian, finished my marathon. The debt progress was going along. I was waking up early. So I'd done a lot of changes. I need to continue that. So the first month, I actually posted what I spent every day on there, all the things I was trying to do with my family. And then it was about a few months in when I was getting some readers. People were like coming in, they were commenting, they're excited about what I was doing. And I'm like, holy crap, this is so exciting. I'm actually connecting with people and they're getting something out of it. And I think this might be my calling. I remember telling my wife that three months into it. And I went into super overdrive. I slapped some Google ads on there, <laughs> AdSense and analytics. And then I started doing guest posts everywhere that I could. At one point at my peak, I was doing five guest posts a week. I was writing five to seven blog posts on my own blog, and I was freelance posting on five different blogs. So it was 15 to 20 blog posts a week that I was writing. I was cranking it. And these are high quality. I remember there's people that are tying in yourself, copy blogger Seth Godin, I would say even in those era, like these mm -hmm. legendary writers that were putting out amazing, unique content. There wasn't unlimited tweets to read. I have to wait for someone to write a long blog post. And hopefully they use WordPress or have used Blogspot. How much in debt were you? I don't even remember what was my deepest. But at that point, it was just probably a few thousand dollars, which might not seem like a lot. But at the time, I didn't have any disposable income. Everything that we did went to rent and bills. We had six kids. So it was struggling to make the ends meet. But then we would take a few hundred dollars and put it towards debt. I had 10 months left for a debt payment, something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something in that range. But how helpful was that? Hey, we only have 10 months to do it. Yeah, there's a method called the debt snowball, where you pay off your like smallest debt or something like that. 
and then you take $100 debt. I'd pay that off and then I would take the money I was putting to that and put it to the next thing and then it would keep snowballing so that the amount that I could actually pay kept getting bigger and bigger and I was knocking all these debts down. But before that, it was just like a pile of bills that I didn't want to look at. And so actually creating a plan where I was, okay, here are the bills that I'm going to pay and when they're going to be paid off and I made the schedule, it made me feel more empowered about it. Okay, I know when the end point is and the ebook that I sold by the end of that first year actually accelerated that. So it was more debt-free way earlier, which is really cool. Congratulations. I was joking and, oh, maybe that's why he, he left Guam because he owed a few thousand dollars. Like, they probably <laughs> can't get you. They can't find me. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I love how you explored your curiosity. I love how it was serving your own desires. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, I want to get out of debt, but it's like, all right, this is something that feels right. There's something here with it. Was that the first thing you made money on? It was, like, oh my God. Because I think for a lot of people out there, especially the yeah. ones that want to get a business going, once you get that first sale, once you get that first ad dollar, it's a transformational moment. Yeah, the ebook was the first thing. And when it started coming in, I was just, holy crap, this could actually work. And there's something here. I didn't realize the power of that, how I felt about this as a career. Still had a day job at that point. Soon after that, I quit my day job. And I also sold a book deal for my first published book. So they gave me an advance, like, here's my resignation. (laughs) (laughs) The book deal plus the ebook coming in, those were the two big ones for me. That has changed my whole life. And after that, I never looked back. I've never been working for anybody since. How much did you make your first year? Uh, that was 2007, but it wasn't a ton. That first ebook, I'm guessing $5,000, $10,000, something in that range. Enough to pay off the debt and have some extra spending money, but I wasn't rich. But I did get that first book deal, which was an $80,000 advance. And I didn't get that until 2008. They gave me the first half up front, and I went on a honeymoon to Bangkok and like a, a little island, Koh Samet in Thailand. And that was awesome. I wrote some of my book there. I think what's interesting for a lot of successful entrepreneurs, they tried a lot of stuff and they're doing things. They're at least in the action. Yes. They're in the game. They're experimenting. They're swinging. They're starting now. You know, you made 30 cents and that didn't work. You're like, well, I got these posts. Let me try something else. Yeah. That actually worked. The other thing with vision, I ask people their dreams and sometimes the dream will evolve just getting going, you make some money and you see how things are and you're like, oh, wow, there's more out here. I think that's the part that's really interesting versus sitting on the sidelines, waiting, hoping versus like getting in there and oh man, there is more out there for me. Yeah. And I was writing those 15 blog posts a week. You said they're high quality. I'm like, actually a bunch of them were not, but that was how I got to high quality was I was writing a ton and I was, okay, this resonated with people. This didn't, I was basically testing it out. And also developing my voice through all that writing. Through writing that much, I actually think I got to be a much better writer. The same thing with money. I tried a bunch of different ad systems. I tried some blogging ad networks. For a while, I had one ad that I sold myself on my site that was pretty good. And then I tried a bunch of things, affiliate stuff. I tried eBooks. At one point, I did a blogging mastermind membership where people would come in and pay me. That actually became my biggest moneymaker for a while. And that was a huge surprise. Okay, I'll try this, but we'll see how it goes. I tried a lot of stuff. And once I started making money with some of them, I'm starting to learn what works and what doesn't, at least with my audience. Do you miss having a job? Sometimes there's this story that, oh, you're an entrepreneur. Life's perfect. You're now can make all this money and it's great. But I think sometimes it's nice that you show up, do your thing, check out and you're done. What's been the trade-offs of being your own boss versus just having the day job? I remember that being really nice. There were some jobs where I could do that, where I'm like, okay, check in, check out. 
did a good day's work. I'm done. But I had other jobs where, man, they would keep me late and I would not get paid extra. And I was really in no control. And so those were the jobs that taught me like, okay, I actually want to be more in control of what I'm doing. I want to be excited about what I'm doing. And if I'm going to work long hours, it's going to be for me and not for someone else. There's definitely some benefits. One benefit of working for someone else was they took care of the paycheck, took out all the taxes, and I would sometimes get a refund. And then what I learned from a business is, wait, you still have to pay taxes, but I didn't set aside any for taxes. And now I spent all of it. Where am I going to get money for all these taxes? So that sucks. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. You'd think by now I would have figured it out. I'm a slow learner. Yeah, we're still learning some of these things. Yeah. <laughs> Walk me through some maybe of the higher level inflections in the business. And maybe if you don't mind sharing, you said you had 5,000 your first year. You've been doing it 16 years. Can you give us a high level revenue story of your business and maybe some of the different ups and downs? Yeah. The next up was that book deal. So the advance they gave me, that was a huge spike. There's been like a long tail from that. So they're making probably a few thousand dollars every year off of that first book. Not a lot. It's gone down every year. But I got ads. One ad actually was my main revenue earner for a while. That plus the ebook. And my expenses were super low at the time. So that was really cool. It was just me. I was a minimalist. We had kids, but generally we lived pretty cheaply because we were doing that from our debt. I wasn't making a lot the next year. So 2008, other than the book advance. And then I think it was 2009 when I started the blogging mastermind thing. And that actually was a big jump. I'm guessing that put me over 100K a year, somewhere between 100 and 200 at that point. The next big thing was Kickstarter. So I did a Kickstarter probably in 2012, and that was for my print book. And that was $150,000 in one go. And so that was a big deal for me. I took the kids to Europe. So first time ever in Europe. Yeah, big family in Europe was not a cheap trip. But I also loved doing that book project because it was my book, my way. I got to do the cover my way. Everything was exactly the way that I wanted it to be. And then I left that blogging mastermind and decided to start my own membership. And it was around habits. So that was called the Sea Change Program. And that became my biggest moneymaker for a long time. How were you feeling about yourself throughout all this? When I started doing my own businesses around really 28, give or take, I think I was really sad. And I was really just like angry. I was angry at Facebook. I was sad. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was frustrated that how am I not more rich at this point? <laughs> and I was disappointed in myself and fluctuating in my feelings. And candidly, I would say probably when I turned 39 is when I finally felt more settled. And I used to think settled was a bad word, but settled in myself, settled in where I live, settled in my friendships and is how I want to be approaching dating. So yeah, I'm curious what that experience was on your side, especially when you have the responsibility of a wife and six kids too. Yeah. I don't remember feeling a lot of anger, not a ton of sadness. It was more around not knowing what I'm doing. I never felt like I knew what I was doing, even though everyone else thought I knew what I was doing. Super famous blogger, and he like invited to conferences, and people like line up to see me. What the hell's going on here? I'm just a regular person. I don't have any extra knowledge, but it was really cool. But it seemed like everyone thought I knew what I was doing. And outwardly, if you see someone who's successful, I think that is what you think or you assume. But I was really content with the writing that I was doing and my life other than the business. But when it came to the business, it was constantly feeling lost. And I wouldn't have ever admitted this, but I can see now there's also a feeling of helplessness. Ah, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to get better at it. And so I was 
constantly trying stuff. I was totally, completely helpless, but there was a feeling of helplessness, and especially when it comes to money and running the business. When it comes to creating content, I love that part. That's the part that lights me up. But the rest of it was where I was feeling definitely lost at sea. I was also at this point on an inward journey, a lot of self-compassion for myself. So that I think that was really helping. And so actually self-compassion was an interesting change for me that before I was driven, motivated by trying to do better so that I could be a better person, right? So if I was productive, I could be a better person. So a lot of my productivity stuff came from wanting to not be as crappy. <laughs> for probably the first few years of Zen Habits and before that was wanting to constantly strive to do better and be a better person. And at some point, I realized I could never outrun any feelings that I had of not being worthy, inadequacy. So I started practicing around 2011, 12, 13 in that area. I was really practicing a lot of self-compassion. And I realized that this was actually why the people who were in my habit program were not succeeding. There were some who were actually succeeding. And then there were others. I would give them the steps and it's not working. And I'm, why not? Here's the things. I did them. Why don't you do it? I didn't say that to them, but that was what's going on here. I'm giving them the steps and they're getting stuck somewhere. And so I started digging in with them. This is actually what led to me starting to become a coach. So this is a, another place where my revenue story changed somewhere in the mid 2010s, 2015 or so. I started becoming a coach because I was looking into why are these people not doing it? And the reason was they were being really harsh on themselves. So they were trying and failing, of course. And then they would be like, oh, I suck, I can't do this. This whole inner story. And that was really fascinating for me to uncover because I thought it was certain steps of doing. You just do these steps and you're done. But there was another layer under that, which is the being layer. What were they doing here that was stopping them? And it was fear and frustration and harshness on themselves. So I started working with people on this. And that's been really deep and amazing journey is working with people more deeply with coaching and small group coaching and really digging in with people. We talked about a year ago about your business. And I love the business part. I love yeah. the money part. Naturally, it's just like someone who can hear music and know st certain things. They just yeah, you're a genius at it. I think I, I don't know if I'd say genius. I would say best in the world. Okay, if I had to be modest. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, <laughs> but when I was a little kid, I'd read the business section. I love it. I think it's so interesting. And so it was fascinating to talk to other people. And when I talked to you, and I was like, "How's your budget?" And you're like, "I haven't set that up yet." And it's not a bad thing, but it's also interesting. Did you try to find like business partner or someone who could do with all that stuff so you could do the creative side? So this is a really good question. It's interesting that you'd say that you were always fascinated with this stuff growing up because I had a different experience growing up. My dad was terrible with money. He died penniless. And so I always had this story about money that I'm not good at it, that it's hard, that it's hard mm. to get. So it was always this feeling of scarcity. And so when I started creating the business, it was amazing that I was making some money, but I didn't know how to manage it. And so from not knowing how to manage it, that what I started to do was try different things, but also try not to spend too much time on it. It was this thing, one analogy is hot potato that I want to just like get off as soon as possible, get this off of me. I'll touch it because I have to, but I don't want to spend a lot of time with it. So I was trying a bunch of stuff. I did budget. I've budgeted a bunch. I have probably a thousand Google spreadsheets that I've abandoned. And then I did a lot of research. I've talked to people and they would give me advice and then I would try and do it. But I always had the story that I had to do it on my own. You know, speaking to your question about a business partner, I have to do it on my own and no one can help me. 
because it's too embarrassing if they look at it. And so it's better if I figure it out on my own so that I can not show all of my embarrassingness. Wow. Yeah. I know what you mean in other areas, and I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, there's different fears. Even this book, I have a lot of fear. When I originally sold a proposal for a lot of money to the top publisher, and, and I was able to then secure Tal Ross, who's one of the top business writers, my critic is, dude, you don't know shit. And all this stuff is not going to work for anybody else. And it's not going to be helpful. And it was like, whoa. But one, you can get help. I think that's a hard thing for people to do, but it is out there. But the other thing was, as you start doing something, you said how you wrote 20 articles a week. Yeah, that made me a good writer. With this book, I've spent three years writing it. And now I've spent weekends, every weekend, with people doing it with them. And I'm running my own business and, and other examples. And I've done it many times. And through that, I'm like, yeah, this works. Someone <laughs> yeah. asked me, like, do you believe it? I'm like, yeah, I believe it. I see it. Oh, you've been working with people using the principles in the book. You've been working yeah. with them in person on weekends. That's so great. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you know it works. I know it works. I see it. They, getting the reps in, trying it, being a practitioner, seeing those results for yourself or someone else, and then you build up that confidence. So did you ever ask someone for help? You're aware of the fear of looking bad to someone else or that you have to solve it? I was telling someone yesterday, I think the reason AppSumo has gotten to these almost $100 million revenue business, which is absolutely insane, is because we hire advisors to coach us in the areas we suck at or the areas that we're not as experienced as other people. So we pay them hourly and they come and they coach us in marketing, in our people department, in our revenue department, in every single department, in our organizational department. It's amazing of a life hack, I wouldn't say, that who has done yeah. some of these things that you want to do and can you afford some hourly or half hourly to be able to learn from them? So I guess how have you explored that or, or worked on that or is it still something you're working through? It's still something I'm working through. You would think I could see it and then, I'm, okay, I'm going to change that. But the way that it's been occurring for me is, I don't know if you have any area in your house where it's super messy and you would never want anyone to see it, but it's embarrassing. Or for some people, it's, it's part of my body that I would never want to expose because it's so ugly or covered in whatever. And so it's just like this thing that you don't want anyone to ever to see. And so if I brought someone in to work on this, they would have to see all of the mess and how dumb I am about all of this. And so it's better to figure it out on my own. But I'm working through it. It's a work in progress. I actually have been doing some work with my coach on this where even talking about it with him yesterday was take a look at my revenues and why it's not hitting the targets. I'm feeling embarrassed about it. And the context that I'm creating for myself now around it is that this is how growth looks. Growth is messy. Growth is sometimes embarrassing. You're going to fall on your face a whole bunch, but that's actually how you grow as opposed to like, here's the embarrassing ways that I suck. That's a terrible context yeah. to have, but that's what I've been having. And so now I actually write this down. This is how growth looks. Being willing to bring people in and fall on your face and be messy about it and admit you don't know stuff. And this is actually, with the coaching that I do, why most people don't get a coach. Why they don't hire people. It's an incredible life hack, but they don't want to like show their embarrassingness, which is why we're not growing. So I've grown in a lot of other areas, but this is one where it's a pretty big growth area growth for me. It's so funny, by the way, whenever someone gives a problem, people always are like, let me tell you how to solve that right here. <laughs> like, let him have his moment. Just want to put that out there in the world. Like when someone's telling you something, they don't need your advice right away. And I think that's the common. Oh, you know how you can fix that, dude? You know. <laughs> I'm curious though, how would you coach yourself about this? This new context that I'm creating for myself, this is how growth looks, is the thing. So the first thing I would do if I were to coach someone 
is I would invite them to take a look and then they'd be resistant, right? So I don't want to look at my money stuff. I want to look at this instead. Let's talk about my dog. Whatever they can talk about, that's not the embarrassing thing. And so if you work with someone over a course of a few months, you'll see that they're talking about all this other stuff, but what is it that's not being talked about? So then you want to ask them to take a look at that. Like, hey, I noticed in the list of things that you wanted to create for yourself, one of them is million dollars a year in revenue. We never talk about revenue. We never look at that. So we're looking at everything else on your list, but not that. What's going on? And they'll be like, okay, let's take a look. And they'll be really reluctant. And then you notice they'll talk about it, but they'll want to quickly move off of it. That's what I do. Okay, let's talk about my revenues. Okay, now let's talk about something else. How about my dog? And then you invite them to be curious about that. What's going on there? And notice that you want to move off of this really quickly. And they'll be like, is there anything that's present for you? And they'll be like, yeah, I'm feeling embarrassed. And so you take a look at that. And what you're practicing actually is for them to be willing to be with that embarrassment. Feel it as opposed to like needing to run from it. And the more you can like be with that, the less power it has over you. So the more you can stay in that, you don't have to run from it anymore. You don't have to like fix it. That would be how it would start. And then at some point we could identify what are the thoughts they have about this? Oh, it's embarrassing. I'm stupid about it or incompetent. I'm weak. All of these things. That's their old context, the way that they're holding it. And then what's a new context that you want to create for yourself? The thing I identified is this is how growth looks. That feels really empowering to me. Hell yes, let's do this. Let's dig in. But each person would create their own. What is it that you would want to create? And then they would start to practice with it. I was practicing with us yesterday on that call and I noticed myself, okay, this is how growth looks. So I would practice with it and then let's talk about it. Let's take a look at it. And then I'm, okay, my coach would check in. Do you want to take a look at that? Or do you want to look at it after the call on your own? I want to look at it on my own after the call. I want to look at it on my own, but let's look at it now. So it was me noticing where I'm like trying to draw back. Let's play with this. And it happened probably like five times on the call where I was trying to withdraw and I could see myself trying to withdraw. And then I let myself move closer to the edge as much as possible practicing at the edge. And that's hard. Most people don't want to do that. And so what I try and do when I work with people is support them to practice there as much as they're able to. Everybody has a different capacity to do that. Nice. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I notice when I'm with coaches, so there's two of them specifically, Andrew Chen, who's one of my best friends, and then I have a, a person specifically in marketing named Moody. I notice that whenever they give me ideas that are not mine, I resist. I don't think I've been, I'm embarrassed because I'm excited. I'm excited for them to come help me get better. That's my mindset. But I notice that when Andrew gives me ideas, he's more of a strategic thinker and mm -hmm. bigger and longer thinker. And my immediate is like, ah, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And it's like, oh, there it is. That's the moment. Uh, and I think the fact of what you're calling out is your self-awareness is the embarrassment moment. My yeah. self-awareness in the growth is the resistance. I just don't want to do that. Yeah, I just want to do that. I don't do that. That's okay. Has that ever shifted? Like you're initially, I don't want to do that. And then later you open to it? No, every time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Every> cool. Time. <laughs> That's cool to know, right? Yeah, it's been good because I know now when I go and talk to them, or other people I'm, I'm looking at as advisors, being mindful on what I'm doing. Doesn't mean I'm always going to go agree blindly, but oh, hey, I'm having resistance here. This is the moment I'm going to be learning something or growing, but I might be blocking. Yeah. Moody's been pushing us on doing a customer avatar, which is a really deep dive into who your customer is and really getting to them. And I'm like, Moody, can we just go help people more? He's like, no, <laughs> I'm going to go do this avatar. I'm like, no, 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 but you know, that's the thing where now it's led to really good outcomes, but it's being able to be mindful of when that stuff yeah. appears. It sounds like it might be some impatience too, because that's there for me. Oh so yeah, I just want to get to doing the thing that's going to help people, right? Like I don't want to spend 
all this time really digging in and like, it's yeah. boring or it takes too long. I want to get to the good stuff. True. I have noticed as I've gotten older, when I started all these companies and failed and tried it when I was in my 20s, I was really impatient. And I've noticed through age and I would say wisdom, I'm still impatient, <laughs> but I'm just like a tinge of patience. And it's actually made me a better person, better leader, better partner. With your businesses in your life, what are some of the highs and lows you think about in your overall journey? The helping people thing, that's the thing that lights me up. And so for a while, I was writing the blog posts and I would get emails. They weren't that impactful. And so when I started meeting people in person, Ooh. I remember going to a conference and people would come up to me and they would tell me their stories. And man, I felt so moved. At one point, I felt like crying. One guy talked about his dad who was in the hospital and he printed out a blog post of mine and had his dad read it and it changed his dad's life. And anyway, those kinds of stories, those are my highlights. And so when I work with people closer, I resisted it for a long time. I would type on my keyboard, send out the blog post. And that's as far as I wanted. Yeah, like keep your distance. Don't even email me. Now I work with people a lot closer, the one-on-one -on -one coaching, small group, like 20 people coaching. And that is much more impactful because I can see it in the moment when it's happening. These podcast conversations, seeing your face, that actually makes me feel there's something going on here. For me, that's the real magic of this. And when people are faceless, nameless customers, it's great. I'm making some money, but it's not that meaningful. So I love working with people a lot closer. You said ups and downs, the highs and lows. Yeah, some inflection points and stories where it was like, oh, I launched on Kickstarter. That was a huge up. And maybe some of the moments that have been more challenging too. Yeah. So I went to speak at this retreat in Ecuador. We're in the mountains, cloud rainforest. And I was working with about 20 other people. And I realized, oh, this is what it's like to work in person with people for like a week. And so I was there to help them, but actually my life changed because I realized there was something else going on here that I couldn't do through the blog. It was a connection and trust that gets formed. And there's something like playful about being together in person. So I need to do more of this. That's when I went on a mission where I'm like, I'm going to do as many in-person things as possible. So I started doing workshops. I went to New York, LA, San Diego, Costa Rica. I went all over the place. I started working with people a lot closer and doing workshops and retreats. And then I started opening to one-on-one -on -one coaching and then doing some other kinds of trainings. That changed my life, being in that mountain rainforest and working with other people. There was another time when I started working with fear. Fear is something that people usually don't want to talk about or work with because it's this thing that we're not supposed to have and it sucks to have it. But I really found how empowering it is to actually be able to see the fear and work with it. The fear that I talked about of being embarrassed, people seeing all my messiness. That's a fear that's always there and it's always driving us. And it's definitely true for entrepreneurs. We're more present to fear than I think most people are. Everybody has it, but we can turn it off, distract ourselves. And so I started working with people more deeply with fear. And I actually consider myself fear junkie. I'm not addicted to fear, but like, I'm a geek about fear. I love working with people with fear, which is not something you normally see. I do think I'm one of the best in the world about that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And so that's another huge one for me. Lowlights have definitely been financial. There have been times when I didn't know where I was going to get the money to pay for from rent to like team members who I'm late on paying them. I don't know where I'm going to get this money. And so the darkest stuff for me has always been those kinds of times when I'm like, 
Like I just had three really bad months where it was way lower than we thought, not making ends meet, and I'm going to debt again. And I've had a handful of those where this is hard, feeling like desperate and panicky. So I would say those are the darkest moments. What do you do in those moments? What do you tell yourself? The story I'm hearing is, oh no, it's happening again. Oh shit. Like I'm back to Guam and like dead. Exactly. Do you stay Zen? You have a blog named Zen. Right. What do you tell yourself? How do you handle it? How do you think about it? How do you approach it? Zen is not always like calm. So Zen is a willingness to be with life as it is. That is actually what I practice. So what I do in those moments is panic. <laughs> what the hell do I need to do right now? And I'm like looking around desperately. Where can I find some money? Do I need to like draw down from my 401k? What else can I do? Take out some from Coinbase or borrow some money or put some money on credit cards. And so I'm panicking and desperately clutching for straws. And it doesn't work. And so the way that I practice with that is just be with that fear. There's fear there, panic. And okay, I need to sit and breathe and like be with that. So when I do that, I have a little more spaciousness. And from there, I can mm. create a little bit of altitude. I might get on a call with my coach or you, usually with a friend, someone who can talk me down from the ledge. Not literally like suicidal or anything, but it's like, ah, this is like, you know, I need to like get a day job. I actually, in my darkest times, actually like, oh, I need to drive for Uber. I'll go drive all night and then work during the day. So I need someone to talk me down. I realize it's hard to do from within when I'm in that place. I'm better now at realizing where I'm at and I can see that what's going on. Here I am again. I know that this is not forever and I know I can get out of this. I'll say one more thing that I do at that place is at some point when I can get some altitude over it, I can see, oh, this is happening again and there's stuff that has led to this. Why does mm -hmm. it keep happening? And so... I don't do that right away, but at some point, probably within a month, I'll be able to look over and be like, oh, this is how it goes for me. This is the thing that I constantly am creating. And then things will get better. Everything is great. And then I take my eye off the ball and I don't pay attention to money anymore because I don't want to. It's the hot potato. So even when things are good, I don't pay attention. I'm spending as soon as I have money as, oh, this is the high life. But it's like, that's what leads to the downtimes. I'm not creating anything that's going to be more stable. So what I'm actually on right now is a mission to create stability, not a flat line, but growth, but there's going to be dips. How am I going to deal with those? So it's actually beneficial, but it's taken me a few times to go through the same cycle, probably more times than I'm willing to admit, more than five. What's the recent time that happened and, and what happened afterwards? Just this past summer. What happened and then what'd you do with it? We had like some low revenue months. Again, I wasn't paying that much attention. I had a bunch of other projects. And so I'm like, okay, everything's fine. And I wasn't paying attention. I had one bad month and I'm like, okay, can write it off as chance, right? Second bad month, I was on vacation. So I'm not going to pay attention. Third bad month, I don't know where I'm going to pay the bills. So three bad months in a row. So since then, I've been doing some work to improve things and we're doing better. But I realized there were some things that broke while I wasn't paying attention. I didn't even notice. I'm still paying for those things now. What I've been doing is, first of all, some compassion for myself, not beat myself up for that, but also look back. What can I learn from that so that I can do better going forward? I'm in the process of climbing out of that right now. I'm not in the place where things are all great, but when I get to that place where things are all great, my intention is to not take my eye off the ball, be more conscious, and what am I going to do from this place to not only pay off all the debt, but 
create something different so that I don't keep staying in a cycle. Hearing how you're, you're exploring these things, hearing how you're understanding yourself. We're all figuring it out on this planet. And different playbooks, which is cool about life. Some areas are more developed in different people. I'm also wondering, some of these other people that were at the same places with you have gone in different directions. I was wondering, oh, does he wish, instead of doing coaching, there's the Noah Kagan way, there's people who aren't public online way, and there's a lot of variety. So I, Steve Pavlina, I don't know where he went, but then you have Tim who did books and then podcasts, and you've gone into the coaching, and then you have Derek Servers who went New Zealand, and he puts out one email a month or whatever. And I guess I wondered how you're evaluating, like how you thought about your path. I wonder if he wishes he was more famous. It's how you think about your relevancy and how you think mm. about your sustainability. Yeah. The fame one, I don't wish I was more famous. Relevancy does matter to me. I do want to be relevant. And I don't care if billions of people know about me, but if I'm helping a group of people and they're willing to pay for it, I'm feeling pretty good about that. So I've always felt good about that part. I do wish I had more money. I wish I was making more. But besides that, the last five years or so, I've really been doing a deeper dive, going into deeper levels of mindfulness with myself, but also with other people around fear and uncertainty and resistance. And so I'm fascinated by that, but it also had me take my eye off the ball around finances. So I've been not paying as much of attention to that. And that was a mistake. It's a weakness in my leadership. When I say weakness, you might be really strong with biceps, but your calves are weak. So it's a place to work on. I have super strong biceps in certain areas. Coaching, I'm really good at now. And creating content, I'm super good at. I'm not great at managing the ship. And so that's the part where I could get better at that. I realized it all matters. You can't just be good at creating content. All of this matters. Otherwise, you will become irrelevant because you can't keep the lights on. So I'm working on that. Everything evolves. I used to think when I'm on vacation, the world stops. Nope, it's going to keep going. And then I guess I'd like to remind myself none of it really matters. <laughs> Fear and all these things, it's hard for us to even dismiss. But in the scheme of it, it's not going to matter. I can see you being a good writer because I've read your writing and you've done it for a long time. What do you think makes you a good coach? One of the hard things is no matter who you are as a leader, entrepreneur, leading a family, whatever you are, you can't see your own blind spots. And so that's the hard part. As I mentioned with money, I have blind spots around money. I can't see them. That's why I work with a coach. So what I've gotten really good at is be able to see other people's blind spots. It doesn't mean I can see my own better, but I can see theirs. When I work with people, I'm paying attention. Like I said, what are they not talking about? What are they not able to see for themselves? That makes me a really good coach. The second thing is that I'm willing to stay with people in the unknown. You could say, oh, I have a script. I have a certain number of questions. I was going to ask these questions of every call. That's useless. So you have to be willing to explore with people. And when they lead you this way, you want to be taking a look and notice the way that they're leading you. And so you have to pay attention a lot more closely. And when they're feeling resistance and not willing to admit that, you can see that. When they're themselves stepping into an area they don't want to know and they want to withdraw, you have to be able to see that. So you have to be willing to see all of that. And it's actually a level of intimacy that we don't have usually with regular customers. You really get to know someone and love them. You really love the being that they are. And that's another thing that makes me a great coach is that I love people just as they are. Every single client I work with, I actually completely love how they're showing up. Even if it's scared and helpless and blaming everybody else, I can love them in that because I've brought love to my own versions of that. I think that makes me a really good coach. And then the last thing that makes me a good coach is that I really stand for people. 
which is like I stand for who they could be, the possibility that they spoke to me. This is what they want. I stand for that as opposed to what they're trying to convince me is I can't do it and I don't know how. So yeah, that's what makes me a good coach. What kind of problems do people come to you with? All of them. A lot of times around Not money. Hey, Leo, <laughs> you some finance advice. Sometimes it is. I'll tell you the thing that, that I can do around money is I have distinguished a lot of this stuff for myself through mm. this work. And so good I point. can see stuff for others and I can see the stuff that they can't see. So actually I can work with people on money. I won't be able to create a business plan for them or stuff that I'm not good at. Uh, for that stuff, I would say hire a business coach who's like better at that. We talk about personal stuff, but we don't dive into childhood trauma. For that, hire a therapist. I guess one thing that I'm curious about, how come you have to do it all yourself? Or that, that's my perception of it. And you said, oh, I'll get better at the finance side. Personally, what I've gotten to and as I've gotten older is the things I suck at, I'm like, nope, I suck. I don't want to do it. I want to find someone who likes doing it. Oh, like hire someone else. I'm not saying that's the solution for you. And I'm sure you've considered that. Most times we give people suggestions or even ask questions. They've probably thought of it. I'm curious, how did it go or think about maybe having someone support you more regularly with that? I have in some cases, but I actually like that you're asking that question because, yeah, it does feel like I need to get better at it. So I'm willing to like give that some thought. Yeah. My approach is double down what you're already good at and the things you're not good at. You can be interested and there's no downside to that. In my 20s and earlier in business-wise, I, I was fixing my weaknesses. And now I'm like, screw those weaknesses. That sucks. So I think one of the revenue streams you were talking to me about is that you're holding an event? Yeah. So it's a retreat. So what I've been doing, part of my Fearless Mastery program, which is the mastermind coaching program that I do with 20 people. And every round, we have a retreat. Last round, we did it in Costa Rica. And... I decided I want to open it up to the public. So this round, I'm opening it up to people to come in and join the work of people who are already doing it. And it's called the Art of Letting Go Retreat. So I'm doing that because there's this thing that people want to become, the possibility that they represent in the world. And there's something that's getting in the way, which is their old stuff, their old patterns, old emotions, their old view of themselves. And so I'm working with people to like, how do you practice letting that go as a Zen mindfulness practice? And I'm really excited about it because when you work with people like writing about it on a blog or talking about it on a podcast, that's one level of work you can do with people. When you go to in-person retreats, it's a much more powerful level that you can get to. You go deeper with them. There's a deeper connection. And you find other people who are excited about this kind of stuff too, which is hard to find in your regular life. So people love these things and I love doing it. I asked you the question about how you chose your playbook, and it, it's awesome that you said, hey, I like learning about habits, and then I like learning about fear. Your playbook is about what feels right to you, which is now it's yeah. coaching and involving in yourself in a one-to-one -one place. And uh, I think a lot yeah. of us are looking for what's our calling. And most of the time, actually, I think we know either we're ignoring it or we're afraid of it. And yeah, like, resisting it. Exactly. And there's some yeah. form of death or some form of letting go. How did you, from a business perspective, think about how does this fit in for you to want to do this or not? We we're talking about how you couldn't cover some bills in the summer. So how did you say, hey, this is something we want to do? It excites me. I'll go back to your first question, but it excites me. I'm like, I really want to do this with people. So I'm doing it. I could actually imagine myself making an okay amount of money from this, but this is like my offering to the world. I love doing this kind of stuff. And so I probably make a little bit of money from it, but it's not going to be a lot. But I also believe that as you come to this, you're more likely to want to come into my next round of Fearless Mastery. So it's 
giving you a sneak peek, a really deep sneak peek into it, or work with me one-on-one as a coaching client. It's in that way, a way to have people be introduced to the deeper work that I'm doing. So that's the business aspect of it. I probably won't make a ton of money at the most $10,000, which is not a lot. But anyone who wants to create in the world, create a business, create change in the world, these are people who like the next chapter for them, the next thing, what's my calling? I have an idea, but I'm feeling stuck around it. And so this is anyone who has any of that. It's someone who is, I really want to create transformation in my life, not just gradual change, but actually next level change. So that's who I think should come. Where should they go to find out more about it? And how much is it? It's uh, $1,800. You can go to zenhabits.net, which is the main site and sign up for the newsletter. And we'll be sending out information on that. Han, you spent 70,000 on the domain. Why don't they go to zenhabits.com? <laughs> It redirects. Again, me and Tynan argued about this, but for some reason, zenhouse.com has a bad taste in my mouth now. Feels like spam. So I just, you can still go to it, but no, zenhouse.net has a special place in my heart. One observation. Sure. That might be something to talk to your coach about. Okay. I will take it. I'm resisting it. You spent 70,000, you really wanted it, and you had older history. And I wonder if there's a new history. So I moved my main website from okdork.com to noahkagan.com today. Oh, today? Yeah. And that oh, was there's something interesting to kind of reflect on it. And I'm like, man, I've been doing OK Dork for so long. And now it's Noah Kagan. Do I want to put myself out there? It's my name. It is me. No OK Dork is a brand that I can put my name behind. It's a cool brand. Which has been cool. And I've done it for 23 years. OK, maybe it's time for the next butterfly. Let go of its shell and the next thing comes out. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's a taco. You take it out of the wrapper. <laughs> So check it out at zenhabits.com. Or, oh, com oh or net. wow, look at you. Did <laughs> Has Zen Habits made over a million dollars in total? In its lifetime? Yes, definitely. Hell yeah. All right, cool. I'm going to use that as a title, the Zen Millionaire. <laughs> that put an asterisk though. That's working on the keeping the millions. <laughs> Making them was one thing. It flowed through me for sure. <laughs> yeah, you were yeah. Zen with it. You said you panic. I, I think that's the most real thing from someone because I met this entrepreneur a few days ago and I really appreciated how what he said is how he behaved. You see these people who post things or they, oh yeah, I meditate. And then you see their lives and you're like, your life sucks, man. Not that anything <laughs> fixes all of it, but it's not aligned. So I, I yeah. appreciate that you being uh, real with it. The final thing I, I want to discuss is our monthly reviews. Okay. So I, I'd love for you to share what it is and, and how it's impacted you or not. I think it's one of these things where I think when people hear about it, like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to do that for myself. Yeah. You guys had been doing it already before I, I jumped in. So it was a group of friends who are all entrepreneurs. And every month we review how our month's gone, personal and business. One, personally for me, it's some accountability. Here's my goals for the month. And how did I do with that? But it's also, you don't always have a lot of people to share this kind of stuff with. And so I trust all of you. I can share deeply personal things. I'm failing at my business and I'm panicking. I can share that with all of you and I trust you. So that's really cool. But I also, I'm inspired by what you're all doing. Your personal reports, I think you should actually be publishing that. I don't know if you are, but you should be publishing it because holy crap, this guy is up to so much. He's having so much fun. You are living life to the fullest. I can't believe what you put in every single month's email. I'm inspired by it. I'm like, damn, I need to upgrade my life. I'm not doing any of that stuff. You're inspiring. And then obviously some of the other guys are doing some pretty cool stuff too. Yeah, I was curious how for your experience. And, and I feel similarly. And maybe about 10 years ago, was it wasn't really that long. I think Tynan sent out a monthly thing. 
And then he sent it to me and a few other people. And then I sent it. And then we just started getting in the habit every month. What's going on with the month? How was your relationship? How was your work? Tynan travels a lot. How's his family, which is important. How's his hobbies? How's his projects? And there's no set format. There's no, here's the exact format that you have to follow. Everyone has their own exact way. Yours are always short and peppy. And then sometimes you have a little <laughs> darkness in them. And then Nick, it depends on if he has time to write it or if his assistants have time to write it for him. <laughs> Personally, the structure for me helps. I do my past, present, future, and then I have categories. Yeah. It makes it easier for me to document it. But I have found it insanely valuable for myself. What I normally do is I look at the photos of the past month and that's how I write it. Oh, is that how? Oh, cool. Yeah, I go and look at my photos. And it's also, you don't realize how much, even if you think you've done nothing in a month, that's not true. And even if you've done a lot, wow, I did do a lot, but it always amazes me. And the amount that you do is insane. (laughs) I'm actually really impressed. After I broke up with my fiance, I looked at my old journals and I've looked at them at different time periods, a year later and three years later. And uh, I think we're at four years later now. And it's cool to see our growth because I looked at those journals and a lot of them were happy one month, sad one month, sad, not liking work, much more of a darker feel. I've been putting in the reps now with coaches, my therapists, business coaches, CEO coaches to get to this point where it, life does feel more stable and more optimistic for myself. And doing the reviews of it is cool to be able to look back on it and be able to also think a little bit more intentionally. How do I want to have this month? And so one of the things, oh, I want to get a pinball machine or I want to make sure I do this thing. And so I do it in my review. And then the next month, did you actually do it? And this group is not an accountability group where in the sense of like, so much, yeah. use, it's more of a close friends to you know, reflect on yourself. And I, I do share it with my brother, Adam Gilbert, and my girlfriend now. And it's a little sensitive. I'll talk about my girlfriend. I talk about the fights. I talk about the good times. And You're an open book. I, I really love that about you. Yeah, it's for me. I write it with the intention I'm not sending it to anyone. Because if I do know that I'm going to send to my girlfriend, I'm such a good boyfriend this month. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you censor yourself, right? Ah, oh, you totally do. One of the things you commented on that Tynan has talked about his relationship and how it's developed and how it's matured in a productive and, and really rich relationship and way. And it's inspired me and made me think differently about how I do mine. And it's a way that I get yeah. to connect with him and you and Nick and, and the other person. You do learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing I do is at the end of the year, I look back on all of them. And I actually compile like this year review for myself. Here's how my year has gone. And honestly, the amount that I did during the year, looking back on all of those, is actually really inspiring. Really cool to like see. And also to see the beginning of the year, I said I was going to do this. I didn't even touch that all year long. (laughs) That was the the podcast actually that I'm doing is that I said I was going to do a podcast last year. I didn't even touch it. This year, I'm not waiting anymore. So I launched my podcast in August. What's it called? Zen Habits Podcast. Yeah. All right, Leo, I was going to end the episode with everyone out there. Just be a little kinder to yourself and other people. I think the self-compassion, self-care, whatever it is, go to the spa, get a facial, give your, go for a walk, tell yourself one nice thing that you did that day. It's harder to recognize it and easier to do than people think, but it's powerful. It's real powerful. So a little self-compassion. Amazing. That is a wrap. I hope you've loved Leo as much as we did chatting with him. You can check him out on Twitter at Zen underscore habits, as well on Instagram. That's official Zen habits on Instagram, or just go to zenhabits.net. Or since you listen to the show, go to zenhabits.com. He earned it. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go meditate together. And before we go, tweet at me or Instagram at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you think of this episode. I love hearing from you. Also, go check out tidycal.com. I use it to schedule 
podcast guests, and customer calls for AppSumo. It's free. Also, you can use it to get people to pay you to book meetings, and we have people making six figures a year doing that. That is tidycal.com. Finally, a couple shout-outs to the amazing team who makes this happen. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com. You do so much now. Thanks a lot. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Tommy, and Sylvie from the Dork Team for all the magic y'all do. Thank you for being a listener. Have a healthy day. What's your favorite sleeping position? Huh?